Hello and welcome to Peach Pot, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm excited this week to have back Jessica Salaji, a writer at allongeorgia.com. Uh, Jessica, thanks for coming back onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. So last time Jessica was here, we uh, previewed the runoffs on the Republican side. And uh, just this last Tuesday, we had the conclusion to uh, the big runoffs in Georgia in the governor's race, in the lieutenant governor's race, in the secretary of state's race. So we're going to look back at those races and look forward to November uh, with these matchups that are now set up between particularly the big one between Brian Kemp, who defeated Casey Cagle and the a Republican runoff for governor, he's going to move on to face Stacey Abrams in the general election in November. And then the other topic we are going to cover today um, is this new proposal from the Trump administration to offer about $12 billion of aid to farmers around the country in response to the Trump administration's agenda on trade and the tariffs that he's levied on, on China and the EU that have harmed uh, farmers across rural America. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna take a look at that issue and hear a little bit about what uh, Georgia farmers are facing as um, as Trump tries to provide some aid to farmers around the country. Um, but let's start with the uh, runoff in the governor's race. Um, so as we said, Brian Kemp defeated Casey Cagle on Tuesday evening. Uh, this was a race that was called really quickly after it was done. I think the calls started coming in about 90 minutes after the polls closed. Um, it was a big victory for Kemp. He uh, pulled in 69.5% of the vote to Cagle's 30.5%, and Kemp won all but two counties in the state. So Jessica, what was your just your top line reaction to seeing Kemp come out on top of this runoff? You know, before the, I had, I'd been feeling pretty good about Kemp's chances. I supported him. I was on the anyone but Kegel um, team, but I actually, we were actually talking about this before the show started that, you know, there was a, a shift from people just being like against Kegel to actually backing um, Kemp because they, they wanted to. So you kind of saw this change um, after the tapes came out with Clay Tippins and just an overall disdain for like who Casey Cagle was being portrayed to be, which is the real Casey Cagle. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, people are just backing Kemp and they're, they're speaking really positive, not just Kemp because not Cagle. And I think everyone was feeling very optimistic. And then when the Trump endorsement came in, they just kind of considered it lights out. I went to the rally in Macon ahead of the election, and um, it seemed just like unavoidable that it would be a landslide, but I did not imagine almost 70-30 landslide. Like I was thinking maybe 60-40 just because Kegel had so much money and spent so much money just, you know, building and boosting his name recognition on what he already had. And Kemp just obliterated him. And I every time I refresh the Secretary of State website, I couldn't believe that the margins were just ticking up. Yeah, it was funny. I had that same reaction to uh, the primary on the Democratic side. I kind of thought Stacey Abrams would have that one under control. But I never imagined that she would get over 70% of the vote. And Kemp got nearly 70% of the vote. And I think Evans won maybe four or five counties in the Democratic primary. And Kemp did even better than that, winning all but two counties. Um, what do you think that the turning point in this race was? Was it was it basically over for Cagle once the tapes came out? Or, or did Kemp need that endorsement at the end to be able to win this race? You know, what's crazy is that and I was I spent a lot of time on Twitter, like after the race was called, just looking at reactions. And there were a lot of inter internal polls that were released. And it was a day by day poll of Kemp and Cagle. And it had two lines and, you know, the change in percentage. And Cagle really never, he stayed um, at the same percentage point. He, he hovered. He didn't really, he had maybe an uptick or two from the time the primary was over through the runoff until Nathan Deal's endorsement, and he saw a slight decline. And then when Trump endorsed Kemp, it was a huge drop-off. I think it went down 18 points over three days after Trump and Pence endorsed Kemp. But what was crazy to me when I saw these polls was that the numbers really didn't change for Cagle after the tapes came out because, you know, they were just rolling in the days after the election. And 
I think there were three that were released over a couple weeks from Tippins, and and Kegel really didn't decline, which to me is alarming because it means that his supporters were willing to support him regardless and saw no issue with the tapes and weren't, you know, if that had been my candidate, I would have been jumping ship. But the, he, they didn't. So he didn't grow and he didn't sink. He he just stayed the same until Trump came out. But I did love that there was a small decline from deal because it shows that people appreciate economic utopia that he he presents, but they're tired of giving up other policy positions just for jobs, jobs, jobs. And that's kind of what the deal administration has been. And Casey Cagle tried to piggyback on that. So, and so do you think that this might be kind of a turning point for Republicans in Georgia? I had kind of come around by the end of the race, I had kind of come around to the idea that Cagle's biggest mistake might have actually not been might have been not winning the primary outright, and that he may have never had a shot after that, because it, at least in the primary, when it was a five way race, you kind of had a couple of candidates that represented sort of different wings of what I'd consider the more the more conservative side of the Republican Party. Hunter Hill was kind of more the like purest fiscal conservative and had the military background and, and talked a lot about his Christian faith towards the end of the race. And, and Kemp really leaned into sort of the new Trumpish wing of the party with a lot of discussion on immigration. Um, I mean, they, they were all in this constant competition over the second, second amendment. I don't, I don't know that anyone really won that, uh, that contest thoroughly, but, um, you know, once you get past the primary and, and Cagle can't really find a way to get over about half of the party to back him, it seemed like everybody was ready to, you know, join the anti-Kegel bandwagon. And, and I think it would have been easy for, or I think it would have been the same result if it had been Hunter Hill that made it through and it was a Hunter Hill, Casey Cagle runoff. Um, but so, so with that in mind is, does this signal a shift in the party away from kind of the deal Casey Cagle chamber of commerce wing and towards any various flavors of conservatism? I really feel like it is, and there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is that, you know, we just had a primary for a lot of state House and state Senate Republicans, and I think there were five or six in general of um, people who were running as, you know, very conservative or maybe even libertarian conservative Republicans, and they had Chamber of Commerce um, opponents, and all of them were successful overwhelmingly with the exception of Jason Spencer and God help him. I don't want to get into all of that tonight (laughs) because that's a whole other show. But aside from what happened after the fact, I mean, if you look at his voting record, it was in line with the rest of these people who, you know, were overwhelmingly able to defeat their chamber of commerce opponents. So I think, and those negative, those campaigns were all so negative. So just over the top outside dark money don't know where these mailers and radio commercials and TV ads are coming from. And the voters, I mean, look at Matt Gertler. The voters said, no, we we want to keep our representative. We want our district to, to support the people that we so choose. And I think that that was a smaller scale of what we saw with the governor's race. And economic development and economic prosperity is great, but we have sacrificed on both sides of the aisle a lot for the progress that has been made. And Casey Cagle has been a leader in that. And I think that, you know, you're right about if he had, if he had run and defeated all of the other candidates in the primary, he'd probably be our governor. But I don't think the majority of Georgians think jobs is our the most important issue facing our state, which is kind of what Casey ran on. I mean, he said he was going to bring 500,000 new jobs in the first year. So I think first term, 500,000 a year. <laughs> that would be... Listen, that I would heard be some a real crazy things from I'm probably, you're, I know you're right. That sounds more accurate, but... So, so what are some of the things that you feel like conservatives have given up? Is, is this... Has this been something that conservatives have been frustrated with does it go back to kind of the Republican takeover of the state house back to Sonny Purdue and all the way through Nathan deal? Or is this kind of a ongoing back and forth between the more conservative wings and kind of the business chamber wing? 
I think there's always going to be a war between the uber conservative wing and the chamber wing. And what's crazy, which I think is a, a huge misunderstanding in the media and among people who disagree, um, which I'm one of the people who disagree at least 50% of the time. I think that there's this understanding that the uber conservative under the gold dome is like super social issue oriented. And those really aren't the people who are the ones who are, you know, trying to shrink the size and scope of government. It's really the it's from a fiscal side or the proper role of government side. Um, the people that we're seeing kind of fall under attack or be villainized by leadership. Those people are the ones that supported Kemp, whereas the ones who seem to be one of the mill Republicans just, you know, follow leadership, fall in line. Those are the ones that were on Team Cagle. So there's a huge divide. And I don't think that the I don't think the divide is going away anytime soon, but if Kemp were to become our governor, I think you would see a huge shift in the way that Republicans under the Gold Dome behave. I don't think you would see, I guess I said there were no social issues, but I do think religious freedom and religious liberty would be one of them that would come up. So that would be a social issue. But otherwise, I just don't foresee so many, you know, income tax credits and sales tax credits and loopholes to the tax corporate welfare stuff. I just don't think we would be seeing that on the, the scale that it that we have. Um, so this was a pretty bruising primary between Kemp and Cagle. Is, is there anything out of this primary, any kind of baggage for Brian Kemp that you think is going to continue to haunt him in the general? Or, or do you think he can make a pretty clean break from uh, this inner Republican contest? So I, I knew you were going to ask that, and I was actually thinking about it before we started. And I wrote an article just after the election that talked about how every attack that Casey tried to leverage against Kemp didn't stick. They tried to talk about his incompetence with the um, Secretary of State. They tried to coin the phrase incompetence, like nothing was sticking. Um, they even went after his business dealings and a, and a lawsuit that was pending, and people weren't just weren't having it. And so... My concern is, you know, as someone who would prefer not to have a Democrat governor, but isn't really sure if she wants a Republican governor either, you know, my concern is, do people not listen to those attacks because they were coming from Casey Cagle? And will will they listen to them from a Democrat? Or will the people in the middle who are not committed Republicans, are those things that Cagle brought up about Kemp going to matter? I think the voting issues from the Secretary of State's office are very Democrat, limited to Democrats in terms of those who are upset about it. I have not found any Republicans who think there was any wrongdoing. I don't know if that's because of it's just my guy or whatever it is. Um, but they don't see that as an issue. So I don't I don't foresee that being something, you know, he's not scoring any points with the libertarians because of ballot access stuff. So his his track record of Secretary of State, in my opinion, would be the most damning because Stacey Abrams, even though she's on a payment plan, owes taxes. So if Brian Kemp owes businesses, it's really, it's similar in terms of like, from someone who's not on either side, it's one for one. You know what I mean? Whereas he has his record in the Secretary of State's office of making enemies, I think that would be the his biggest problem. I actually felt like early in the runoff, some of the the things that got dug up, particularly Brian Kemp's the business dealings in Kentucky with, with the agribusiness that had a crop that failed. Um, you know, that, that felt like it kind of played one for one with Cagle. The thing that I think may linger for him that he may have a problem with is sort of this confluence of, of a couple things um, Cagle towards the end of the race brought up donations that Kemp received from the owner of a massage clinic and the massage clinics that this guy owns, um, are under investigation for it, it. And they're supposed to be under investigation by a wing of the secretary of state's office for alleged, uh, sexual assaults that took place in those massage parlors. Um, and the owner of those massage clinics hosted a fundraiser for Kemp. The other thing that, that Cagle tried to dig up towards the end that I don't think was probably very effective for him, but is a nice issue for Stacey Abrams is this alleged quote from Brian Kemp during a 2016 presidential mm -hmm. debate that a, a ProPublica reporter raised where 
he was at an event at a hunting lodge in Kansas with Brian Kemp and a whole bunch of other secretaries of state and corporate heads or you know, corporate bigwigs. Um, and, and Kemp allegedly said that uh, Trump should have gone over and groped Hillary Clinton. I think those two uh, pieces of bad news around Kemp, along with his uh, stated position of supporting a, a heartbeat abortion ban, a six-week abortion ban, those may come together to create a pretty potent message for Stacey Abrams to target at women voters. Mm -hmm. And that's one that I don't know is exclusive to um, to Democrats. I think sure. moderate Republicans or the the women in the suburbs are, are now this group that people are paying really close attention to in the Trump era. Um, those are issues that I think Abrams can play on pretty easily because she's a woman and because it taps into some dem some issues that Democrats run well on. Um, if there's anything that comes out of this that haunts Brian Kemp, I think it's the combination of those things. I'm not really a fan of the fact that the owner of those businesses hosted a fundraiser for Kemp. I think all donors probably have a vested interest in some capacity, but I do have to wonder how much and at what point he would be someone to step in, and you may know the answer to this, but, you know, the board is appointed by the legislature and the governor, and Kemp oversees the board for these license holders, and they have chosen, the board has chosen not to reprimand. So at what point are we, should we, during this process, should we hold Kemp directly responsible for that? Should he override the board because it's all come to light now, or... Should he have the board removed? I mean, what what would you see as the remedy kind of aside from using it as a campaign tactic? I mean, I think I don't I don't know the intricacies of that to really be able to say. I think if Kemp could look like he was doing something, then it might help neutralize that issue for him. Um, even if he was just able to put out a press release that you know, made it sound like he was acting, but he was only reopening an investigation or, or making them go back and do it again or something like that. Um, I think the intricacies of that are going to get lost because I of think course. Abrams will just say that he took donations from somebody who owns a clinic with sexual, where people were sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the issue, the way that I think Democrats would raise this is, is kept not taking the issue of sexual assault seriously, particularly in the Me Too era. Um, and and doing that really, you know, to make that claim, they don't even have to get into the investigations issue. It's why are you doing political business in in the form of receiving donations from somebody um, who's involved in that? And I, I think that's probably where it gets left. Um, and I don't think that Kemp actually, you know, part of what Kemp did to these claims during the, the runoff is he just, it, he didn't try to explain his way out of them or address them. He would just turn and attack somebody else. And I'm sure that uh, with all the bad blood between him and Abrams, I bet that's the strategy on that point. I don't disagree. But. So coming out of this, do you, do you think that the Republicans picked the best candidate to take on Stacey Abrams or, or is there an avenue there for Stacey Abrams to actually win this race? You think? Well, those are two very different questions. <laughs> they're the same, but they're very different. Um, do I think the Republicans picked the best candidate? I really do. Um, I did not want, I mean, Casey Cagle would have had a huge case for voter suppression just on all of his behaviors, and that would have kept people away. So I, I do think they elected the best person. Um, I was actually having a conversation with somebody um, and put it out, on social media about the massive Democrat turnout in the primary this year compared to 2014, which granted there were no contested races, but even in 2010. And I think the Democrats saw like something like 57% increase in turnout, whereas Republicans only saw 2%. I think that just like always, it's going to come down to turnout and the number of people who are registered and who number of people who can be engaged and excited enough about the candidates. Um, whether or not Stacey Abrams can defeat Brian Kemp, I think depends on whether or not Brian Kemp can keep everyone as engaged and fired up. You know, he had a lot of momentum in the last three weeks. Can he make that stretch until November? Yeah, I kind of wonder if it's 
you know, I, I feel like conservatives are likely to be pretty fired up throughout the process because the one thing that happens now that Kemp has the Trump endorsement is, you know, they, they had Pence get on a plane and come down to Macon pretty quickly after that endorsement in the runoff. Um, and so you have to imagine that that Trump may come and stump for Kemp um, in the during the general in November. And so I, I think that sort of the Trump and conservative wing of the party is going to be excited. But the issue that that may bring is for moderate Republicans to the extent that Trump has more bad news for him come out of Washington and Brian Kemp is probably going to have to answer for these things on the stump. Um, does that turn off voters that Casey Cagle would have won because, you know, Cagle would look moderate and acceptable to those kind of voters compared to Abrams. Um, and if they stay home, is that, is that the Avenue that Abrams has is I think probably where she could, um, see her strategy going. Yeah, I I said immediately after Trump endorsed Kemp that I would still support Kemp despite his endorsement by Trump. So, and that was, I mean, it was easy because it was running against Cagle, but I, I agree. I mean, not everybody is a Trump-loving Republican and it, it did turn some people off. I think they just disliked Casey Cagle so much and were so disgusted by this, the tapes and everything else that it was okay. But I don't know if that same thing will prevail in November. One of the things that I've always noticed about Georgia politics, Tom Price used to say this, and I'm I'm sure other people have too, that the absolute worst day in partisanship in Atlanta is always 100 times better than even the best day of partisanship in Washington, D.C. But these are candidates that are far to the left and the right within their own parties. So, so what do you think is going to happen to kind of the divide between the two parties in the state in this race? Well, so I read an article on Stacey Abrams in Time Magazine. Did you read it? Have you read that article yet? I saw it. I did. I didn't read it today. It's a really good article on her. It was very fluffy and very well done, but it explained how well she worked with the other side when she was elected. Um, and was serving as the minority leader. As somebody who wanted, you know, a caucus of, of no votes, I struggled with her because I felt like she worked with Republicans too much under the Gold Dome and maybe um, had opportunity to kill bad bills. But when talking about the divide of them being so extreme, I don't, I don't know where that leaves the, the middle because someone like me... I mean, Brian Kemp is, I don't, I didn't vote for Brian Kemp because I felt like everything he is, stands for is what I believe. And Stacey Abrams, there's only a few issues in which I, and I think that most people are like that. So I don't know how they pick up the middle. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I, I think, you know, it, it could be that a lot of people in the middle don't go vote. Or maybe they could find a down ballot race that they get interested in. There's a, there's a couple for Democrats, um, or there's a couple of Democratic candidates that may be appealing to people in the middle. Sarah Riggs Amico, who's running for lieutenant governor, I think she's a former Republican, and um, her her rhetoric that I've heard she she sounds kind of like kind of closer to the mold of Jason Carter, Michelle Nunn, mm-hmm. um, the Democrats that ran in 2014, and then John Barrow is back uh, returning to Georgia politics, and and he's somebody who's been appealing to conservatives even um, when he was in Congress, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, with the exception of that, you know, I, I don't, I don't see a lot of appeal in, at the top of the ticket for moderates and, and there's no big presidential contest for them to go vote on. So it seems like they could be the ones that kind of drop through. Do you feel like Stacey Abrams is the type of Democrat that Georgia Democrats want? Because Jason Carter was not successful, but he did grab some libertarian votes. And I think some Republicans supported him because they didn't like Nathan Deal. So and she they are vastly different in terms of the way they want to govern. So, I mean, has there been a shift at the Georgia level with Democrats or? So I think the shift is that Stacey Abrams wants to bring new voters into the process. And this is part of the uh conflict she has with Kemp was over her voter registration efforts since um, 2014. And so I think that she's sort of reshaping the party in her image, primarily by bringing a lot of voters of color onto the rolls and hoping to turn them out in the fall. But I don't think at this point, you know, like, 
there is this battle going on nationally between um, democratic socialists and the far left and moderate or, or they get critiqued by the far left as corporate Democrats. That divide doesn't really seem to exist in Georgia. None of the congressional primaries really fell along that left versus moderate Democrat line. And so I think for at least for Democrats in Georgia, I don't think they're super picky right now, because they all despise Trump and Republicans in Washington so much that I don't think she's going to have a hard time, you know, reaching across divides within the party, because I think everybody's really kind of ready to set those aside. I mean, Stacey Evans, um, got got beat really bad in the primary and she turned around basically five minutes after it was over to endorse Abrams. She did. And has been tweeting about her and supporting her ever since. So, you know, I, I think she covers all the bases. Um, and I think any deficiencies that she has, people are going to kind of paper over for now because she, you know, is to Democrats clearly better than the alternative. Do you think there's any future for Casey Cagle in the Republican no. Party? You don't think he'll be back? No. I mean, the reason Casey Cagle stayed in power so long is because he always had so much money and he was so powerful. But if you look at the elections, the guy, people go vote for governor and a hundred to 150,000 fewer people would vote for him after voting in the governor's race and then voting in other tickets. I mean, the drop-off was just astronomical. And people didn't really like him. They feared him. And I just, I think that, you know, I think there's a very good chance we'll see some serious deal appointments before he's on his way out. And I think we're going to see a big sh- uh, shift in Congress and Senate and all of that. And I don't think Kagel will be somebody who is in any of those positions. Is there any clue as to what's next for him? Is he going to kind of just go become a lobbyist or something? Cash in? I thought about that today. I'm like, gosh, what if he goes to the other side? But I mean, he's kind of been living that way for the last eight to 10 years. So I don't really know what would be different if he was a lobbyist versus wearing the badge and holding the gavel. I mean, he's playing the same way, but it would be crazy. I I don't, part of me wonders if he would want to do that because even though he's a well-known and he is powerful, like it would still be so much less power than what he's used to. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if if Stacey Abrams was to win this race in the fall, what sort of recriminations go on for Republicans and whether or not they they look at Kegel as a missed opportunity or whether or not they're choosing their future between people who are more like Kemp or more like Hunter Hill or or if Clay Tippins uh, has, a, has a future, has an ability to get back in it. It's going to be real hard for people to trust him, even though they are so happy with what he did. I, He's got an uphill battle. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody will be in a room alone with him. Anytime, That's right. So. <laughs> That's right. At least not without uh, without just not saying anything at all. Right. Um, well, let's move on to the lieutenant governor's contest. Um, so this was a race between Jeff Duncan and David Schaefer. And this one, is it over or it may not be over? Did you see about this today? It's not over right now. Um, So Josh McCoon is a huge advocate for David Schaefer and has been talking on social media and everywhere that the provisional ballots probably won't be counted until Friday. um, And that at that point, Schaefer can choose to request a recount, which all signs seem to point to he will. Um, You know, it's the smallest margin in runoff history recent history. And it's, I mean, 1700 votes. Now everyone's just arguing over whether there's enough provisional ballots, but there's all these articles going around about how ballots were damaged for absentee and couldn't be counted because they had to be cut. And so I think everyone is just playing on that. But Duncan has declared victory and there was a GOP rally, a unity rally. And I'm assuming Duncan was there. I don't know if Schaefer was or not, but Duncan is has proclaimed himself the winner. So but Schaefer hasn't conceded. So Schaefer hasn't conceded, but I think Duncan has gotten congratulations from Deal and Mm -hmm. from some leading Republicans. Um, Well, short of short of some news on that changing, if if we kind of go ahead and accept that Duncan is the winner. Um, what, what was the story of this race 
to you if it does result in Duncan being the winner because I couldn't really get a grasp on this one and I was even I was really surprised that this ended up being close because this was a primary that Schaefer almost won outright he barely got under um, the 50% plus one and then shortly after the primary he got the endorsement of uh, Rick DeForest the the third candidate in that race and so you know just on that math alone because I think uh, Duncan and Jafaris were had a, each had maybe twenty or twenty five percent of the rest of the vote. They were pretty close. Just on that math alone, Schaefer should have seemed to have a big base of support, and Duncan seems to have eroded that away. So Duncan ran the most negative campaign I have ever seen in my life. Um, it was TV, radio, mailers, Facebook. I mean, everything you can think of—just nasty ads. So many of them were proven not true. I mean, and then there was that dark money pack with $3 million funneled from DC money that showed Schaefer as a sexual predator and all this stuff. And I'm not a fan of negative campaigning. Nothing turns me off from the political process more. And I'm really surprised that so many people claim to be as well. And then it came within 1,700 votes, like you said, when Schaefer was expected to have such a large lead. Um... I knew Jeff Duncan as a state representative, and I'll tell you that the campaign he ran is totally opposite of the Jeff Duncan I knew as a state rep, and he really didn't have a platform other than hating David Schaefer. I mean, that was, from the from the get-go, he was anti-Schaefer, didn't really mention Rick very much, and if his website was completely devoid of any type of campaign platform or policy initiatives. I mean, he didn't have anything to say about anything he'd done as an elected official. In fact, he made it look like he was a complete outsider and never ran before um, in a lot of his ads and a lot of his mailers. So I think a a lot of people are very angry and don't want to unite behind um, Jeff. And I think if he ends up being the official nominee, and people learn that Sarah Riggs Amico is a former Republican, that she's only going to grow more appealing to a lot of people who have vowed, no, no matter what, not to vote for Jeff. Do you know anything about the the dark money groups that were behind Duncan or why, um, or have any theories on why some outside dark money group would pour $3 million into a lieutenant governor's runoff? So, you know, the groups are always hard to to track but i feel sure that the packs were very close to duncan even if duncan was not directly involved i don't want to get into any hardline accusations but you know in a lot of races we see um candidates when there's when there's attacks that were as, as character assassination focused as these were a lot of times you'll see, even when it's a nasty race, the candidate come out and say, you know, I denounce these ads. This is not the way we need to campaign, blah, blah, blah. And Duncan has completely just stood beside all the accusations alluding, alluding to Shady Schaefer and all these things. And so, you know, I don't know the name of the person behind the pack, but everything that they spoke about also came from the Duncan campaign. So it was clearly a targeted message and $3 million when you as a candidate only spend 933,000 is a lot of money. Yeah, that is, that is a lot of money. So it's not, there's not some sort of outside effort within conservative politics that doesn't like Schaefer for any kind of reason or no. I mean, the people who don't like Schaefer either had, a political run-in with him, which all elected officials have, or are going off of these rumors and lies and half-truths by Jeff Duncan. I mean, Schaefer, whether you agree with him or not, you always knew where he was going to be on a vote. He was very direct. He didn't really... He played the game, but he was honest about it, if that makes sense. Like, he he played into the system, but he, he was very direct. And he started out at the grassroots level and then worked his way up to the Georgia Republican Party and then ran for office. I mean, he's very well respected. And so I think that contributes to why everyone is so angry, because they feel like this man, even if he wasn't perfect, was like a solid Republican that people could count on to be places and to be in support of initiatives by conservatives. And Jeff Duncan literally 
annihilated him personally. So what what can we take from um, what what you know about Duncan from his time in the house sort of outside of this campaign? Is he, you know, are him and Kemp both sort of headed in the same direction and this emerging um, conservative wing outside the chamber wing or are they would they both be sort of tilting in that direction together if they both end up um, in Atlanta next year? So I I'm very upset with Duncan with the way he ran his campaign, but I liked the person he was as a state representative and I think he will be part of the movement to kind of shift away from the effing politics that Casey Cagle and Nathan Deal had over the legislature in our state government for all these years. He's the kind of person that I would like to see elected. Um, and I think a lot of people will see that if he gives them the opportunity to, to, you know, hear what he's about. I don't know if he and Kemp are lockstep on, you know, where they want to take the direction. I think you're going to see a, a Senate that goes into session and strips the lieutenant governor of all the power that they gave him when Casey Cagle was in power. And I think you're going to see Duncan surround himself with a lot of very educated people and a lot of people who are very policy driven. He has a lot of former state representative friends and people who have spent a lot of time in politics. And I think I think he'll surround himself with the right people, but I think his wings are going to be clipped if he is elected. And he's certainly not going to have the say that Cagle did. Yeah, I saw, I can't remember who wrote it, but I saw an article in Georgia Poll that kind of laid out this scenario of um, either, either Riggs Amico would probably get most of her powers taken away. So like losing the Lieutenant governor's race, maybe might not even be a big deal for Republicans but also that that Duncan might also get a lot of those powers taken away um, unless Kemp really sort of uh, stuck his neck out to vouch for Duncan and um, them sort of push in a more conservative direction. And that that raised an interesting thought for me of going into this election season, I thought that sort of no matter how the cards uh, fell in any of these races, the most powerful person at the Capitol was going to be House Speaker David Ralston. But if conservatives sort of come to power within the Republican party and win um, and win all of their races in the fall, then Ralston maybe potentially, unless I'm misreading him, he, he potentially seems like an odd man out. Totally. The former, uh, former power held by him and Cagle and deal. Um, and so you know, assu- assuming sort of Republicans maintain all their power with a clean sweep, how do you think that might shake out? Is, um, you know, could Ralston find himself on an island? I can only hope. Um, <laughs> you know, I I really think that you're exactly right, that if it is a Duncan Kemp leadership team, that Ralston will be the odd man out. He'll be the least conservative out of all three of them. And by conservative, again, I'm talking not so much on social issues because I think they're all kind of about the same, but more on proper role of government, how they do things, how they view the system, how they're willing to treat people. Um, I mean, Ralston is a very vindictive man and Jeff Duncan and Kemp are not at all. Um, And so I think that would just having that type of integrity or character would add a completely different element that the chambers in the general assembly and the governor's office haven't seen in years. Maybe it would make Ralston be different. I, I don't think so, but maybe. You never know. Um, you know, Kemp and Ralston have the same political consultant team. And so it's crazy that they're not really like lockstep. I mean, Ralston has to support Kemp now. And it's just, it's just an interesting dynamic because they're two very different people. But they do have that bridge. And maybe we would see a shift with, with um, Ralston, but I won't hold my breath. Well, let's talk about the Secretary of State's race real quick. Um, so... This one, um, I I did not know much about this race on the Republican side, but it seemed uh, a pretty foregone conclusion that Brad Raffensperger would defeat David Bell Isle in the runoff, and um, he did that pretty easily. Does the thing that that I'm left with though is 
the two candidates that did not make the runoff were Josh McCoon and Buzz Brockaway. Um, Buzz Brockaway, I think, was a really well-liked state legislator. And Josh McCoon was very polarizing, but he was also very well-known. And when it was Raffensperger and Belle Isle to make it through, I was like, I've never heard of either of these guys, and I don't know <laughs> anything about them. And uh, John Barrow has had a congressional district that has covered nearly the entire state as it moved <laughs> over the years. Um, so, you know, what what's your what's your take on the outcome of this race, and um, you, what's your thought on um, somebody with a lot lower name recognition going up against John Barrow? I think John Barrow could absolutely take this seat. I don't know how I feel about that. He was my congressman at one time. I worked on a campaign against him in one of his congressional districts. So, I mean, I know him. I know the type of Democrat he is. I I don't know. I don't know how I feel about him as a secretary of state, but I think that it is well within his reach. Um, and like you were t- talking about earlier about how people would be interested in down the ballot races and turn out for that reason. People are not going to go to the polls for Brad Raffensperger. They're just not. I mean, even within the GOP circles, he's a very big unknown. He got his name out there because he funneled $800,000 of his own money into the race for ba- for mailers and TV. I mean, he's not like you're talking about a Buzz or a, a Josh McCoon. And so he has a very, you know, a strong uphill battle. And I think that the best thing he can do is kind of appear anywhere that Duncan if he is the nominee officially, and Kemp appear and just continuously be that guy. Otherwise, it could be Barrows easily. I feel like putting Raffensperger on the ticket is kind of like putting Salaji on the ticket too. Like, people are like, what is that name? <laughs> you know, I just, I think, and people, they're, they're petty like that. They're, they don't, Barrow is a name they've heard for a very long time, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. Yeah, he is somebody who's well known. I, I, do you have any inclinations on what this race would be? What like what grounds this race would be fought on? I mean, I don't. Barrow may be best off to just sort of not even acknowledge that he has an opponent, and just talk about his ideas and his issues all the way through the fall and see if that plus name ID gives him the seat. Yeah, I mean, when the four candidates were running, I think the thing that was hardest among Republicans is that they were all saying the same thing. Um, and everything is about licensing and um, election security. Those aren't really, I think election security is an issue for Democrats. Tell me if I'm wrong. But I mean, you guys talk a lot more about like voter lists and access and integrity of the elections in a different sense. So I guess that would be, I mean, I, I foresee Democrats going after Republicans because of the failures of the office under Kemp or the budget shortfalls under Kemp. I don't necessarily see a bloodbath because of Raffensperger. I mean, he literally has no record. He didn't really do anything as a state rep. Well, Barrow, a big messaging point for him is on gerrymandering, which kind of frustrates me because he has no control over gerrymandering as Secretary of State. Um, the, The voter access issues, I think, will be an issue, but I think those are probably, that'll be an issue that really gets fought out between Kemp and Abrams, I think, because so much of that um, is built into their rivalry over the years. And and sort of the new thing that I think could become an issue is this issue of voter purging the voter rolls and how voter rolls are managed, because um, the Supreme Court recently upheld a voter purge process that Ohio uses and theirs was just barely more stringent than Georgia's. Um, and so in terms of the way that that uh, the, the base of Democratic voters looks at voter suppression, um, you know, gerrymandering is part of that, I, voter ID is part of that. But the new uh, shiny object in terms of voter suppression is these uh, purge operations that are done, um, which... You know, I, I think it as a technical matter, I think it can get a little overplayed because, you know, states have an interest in making sure that people who die are not still registered to vote or, um, you know, but there's evidence coming out. And um, I haven't looked at this closely, but that the the purge process may be a new tool for um, some Republicans that want to limit access to the rolls for uh, for people of color and, you know. I don't, it's hard to tell between what's 
a charge levied, uh, what's a politically convenient charge levied by Democrats and, and what actually has some concrete evidence behind it. But as in, as in everything else in politics, that really isn't important (laughs) to some people. You know, it's interesting that you bring up things that they don't have control over because the one issue that Raffensperger used to separate himself was sex trafficking and cracking down on it. And, you know, my whole thing was, okay, you're secretary of state, like, you can't take away someone's license without due process. And if there's due process, then there's going to be some legal repercussions. So, like, hold the phone here. If someone, if a business is trafficking humans, like, call the authorities and enforce the laws. Like, I, I was just so frustrated with it because I felt like it was pandering when he couldn't actually do anything. And Well, this is this is why I think uh, Republicans made a big mistake by not putting Buzz Brockway in this seat because he was, he... Uh, had a lot to say about licensing and about things that sounded like they were actually under the purview of the secretary of state. Um, so I don't know. Is he, he seems well liked in the legislature, but is, is Buzz Brockway somebody who was known across the state or just known within the tight political circles of Atlanta? I, I love Buzz, but I don't think he had the name recognition across the state. And I think he would have needed a lot more money he has a great name, Buzz. Like, it's a trendy name. I think if he had the money to get his name out there, that's one of those that would have stuck. Um, but he just didn't have the money behind him. But he is super likable. And I think that if people had gotten to know him either over a longer period or by other mechanisms like mailers and TV, that he for sure would have been somebody that people picked. Well, I like Buzz a lot. So I hope he makes it back into Georgia politics sometime soon. Well, let's move on to our third topic this week. Um, So the Trump administration, um, since early on in the administration, has been um, enmeshed in a trade war with uh, different countries around the world. China is probably the biggest target, uh, but the administration has pushed tariffs towards China, towards countries in the EU, um, I believe towards Mexico also. And some of the repercussions of that trade war are starting to be felt at home. And so uh, this this week, the Trump administration uh, released a plan to offer $12 billion in assistance to farmers around the country who were impacted by uh, their trade dispute with China. Um, this was a proposal that was actually really panned by a lot of Republicans in Washington. Um, they were basically making the case that uh, farmers want trade, not aid, and we're really panning um, this as sort of a welfare handout from from the government, um, which which I found a, a little bit surprising. But the the other um, thing that seemed to send shockwaves towards farmers is the idea that this was viewed as a band aid, but um, it's also a signal that Trump is not going to drop his trade disputes with China anytime soon. Um, so. I'm curious from you, Jessica, is is this an issue that you're kind of hearing about in South Georgia? And, and what are people's views of um, this administration's approach towards trade? I think from what I've heard and from the farmers that I've spoken to in several counties down here, that they're just really frustrated with the idea of sending money in to funnel to kind of like you said, put a Band-Aid on an issue that is much bigger. All they want is to be able to sell their crops and their, their their goods for a fair price in a market. And the market is already rigged so much. I mean, big industries set the prices and they don't know if they're going to make money. Even if they have a great crop, they might not make a lot of money because of what the prices are set and um, or what they're set at. And, you know, they they cap things so that nobody does too much better than some of the other farmers. Like the system is already so uneven. And I think that farmers, when they chose to support Trump, they did so in hopes that there would be some sort of stability in in the market and kind of, you know, when we're talking about made in the USA and in US goods, that there would be some shift toward leveling out the market and and halting all of this government intervention and manipulation of the market. And they're just not seeing that. Um, for example, I have a, a farmer friend who, um, I don't want to give too much information about him, but he basically has, um, he grows pecans 
pecan soup people up there say. And um, down here they say that if it's a pecan, if you pick it up off the ground, it's a pecan if you buy it in a store. So, um, but he he grows pecans. And when the first round of tariffs came out, he said that he was going to break even. And when the second round came out, um, it ended up that his projections for this year would cost him $700,000. Like he was going to be in the hole. Wow. And for for his business. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not making $700,000. This is part of his whole enterprise that he has. But it was going to be in the whole $700,000. So you think about the fact that there's going to be this allocation of $12 billion. Well, if one guy who obviously isn't representative of everybody, I mean, he's a pretty big farmer, but is already in the hole for $700,000, there's no way that they're going to give every farmer that kind of money. So they're probably still going to experience a loss. Um and for what cost? I mean, the biggest problem is that a lot of our farmers sell to other countries and then those countries sell it back to us. And so it's it the costs are just going up every direction and the farmers are str- struggling immensely. And so I think that's where the fury is coming from is when is enough going to be enough? And do you get the sense that um, this would shake any of these Republican support of President Trump because it was framed in the news in Washington as this was one of a few things that um, the the aid package and then a deal that Trump just struck with the European Union um, related to soybean products. Um, both of these were sort of him trying to sort of hold his fire until after the midterm elections because they were worried this would undermine support among Republicans in farm country. Do you get that sense at all that people are so frustrated with Trump over this issue that they may not vote for him or or go out and find a Republican to vote for in the midterms? You know, I don't know. The Trump support in rural Georgia is so strong. There are people who still have their Trump signs up. um, And the election was 18 months, 19 months ago. So I don't, I don't know if it's wavering their support. I, I wonder if it's fear and anger right now. And then when it actually happens, when everything, you know, these people start seeing their losses and their businesses are taking hits or they can't continue farming, if that will maybe shake them from their support. But what I have found is that there is a lot of frustration among Republicans with Sonny Perdue um, for not taking concerns from these boards and these farming groups and taking those to the president and asking him to intervene um, I don't know if it would be effective, but they feel like he, as you know, Secretary of Agriculture, he's not standing up for what they need. Yeah, I'm struck by the idea that um, uh, farm state Republicans were not more concerned about this issue kind of from the beginning. I mean, maybe they were and it just wasn't in the press. But like Donald Trump, a uh billionaire real estate mogul from New York City does not seem like the kind of person who would really have the concerns of people in farm country at the top of his mind. Um, So I don't know. Did you see the article during the election season about Trump saving a farmer in southeast Georgia? No, I didn't see this. I will find it for you and I will send it to you so that you can share with all of your friends because I am not kidding you. This article is about an eminent domain fight that Trump took up and ended up saving this farmer. And that thing, I swear, it was shared by almost everyone I know down here. Like it was it was like that was the gospel. There was no and it was several years old. It wasn't from like right within the election, but it was it's something he did as a businessman. And so I think I honestly feel like this article had like a huge impact in our region because it was shared over and over and over over the course of several months. And people literally said Trump is for farmers because of this article. Um, and and what, so what happened? He like intervened on behalf of the farmer in a imminent domain issue or honestly, I can't recall right now. I don't want to speak incorrectly about it, but it was something to do with, yes, with eminent domain and, a, a business deal and he 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 ended up being on the side of the farmer and saving the day literally and this farmer told their whole story i think to the ajc but that kind of stuff just spread like wildfire because people think if it happened to one person it could happen to them and you know the president is going to save them as well so it's just interesting one article yes i'd love to know the analytics on that article 
I have a I have a really obscure reason not to like Donald Trump, and that's uh, he uh, cost the Georgia Bulldogs and probably a second national championship in the '80s because he convinced their star running back Herschel Walker to leave Georgia and come play pro football for his team he owned. So. <laughs> I haven't liked Donald Trump for an obscure reason for a long time, but I guess we can find obscure things to like and dislike about Donald Trump. Um, To, to kind of close this out and and come back to the governor's race, the, the one thing I thought was really interesting from something you wrote um, was that you, you said when you um, first saw Kemp at a forum in Milledgeville, you thought he was um, somebody who really, grasp the contrasting lifestyles of life in rural Georgia and in metro Atlanta. Um, I I was also struck by sort of the, the quick rejection of this $12 billion in aid as kind of a handout, even though I, I understand the underlying reason. But what, you know, what, what is it about, um, or like what draws people in rural Georgia or in rural places to Republicans in a way that makes them feel like they're um, supported by Republicans. If it, if it's not, it doesn't seem to be things that government is doing. And obviously you guys are the small government party, but like to me, I, I look at issues in rural Georgia and see a lot of reasons for government to do more to help. And it feels like to me, if, if I was somebody living in rural Georgia, I would feel kind of abandoned by this small government, approach. But but what is it about Kemp and about conservatism in general that, um, you know, is really attractive to people in rural Georgia? So the the forum that you're talking about was the first time they were all on stage together. Tippins wasn't in the race yet, or maybe he just announced, but he wasn't there. But he, none of the other candidates spoke about problems in rural Georgia, and none of them seemed to have any understanding about it. I was a moderator and had a few questions about it and most of them just approached it from like Georgia as a whole and while I don't think we should govern you know by region rural Georgia needs attention whether it's southwest southeast northwest northeast rural Georgia needs attention and Kemp came up with this four-point plan and I, I interviewed him at length for almost an hour about his plan for rural Georgia and you're right I mean it seems like you need government intervention um, for a lot of the things, specifically like hospitals. Um, but I think the thing that draws Republicans in these areas is so much of our, I don't want to get into super minute um, intricacies of this, but so many of our problems are rooted in regulation. Like where I live, I can't have better internet because my county sold the rights to my right of ways to one company that offers literally like DSL dial up, but the company across the street or the company, the property owner across the street has fiber and because their property rights got sold to a different company. And like the government did that and it would take a state or you know, bigger entity to override that and say, you can't do that. Um, and I'm all for local control, but I would really love to have fast internet. So I'll, I'll abandon my principles for just a moment, but it's things like that, um, that have like, that's a very simple example, but the same thing is with the hospitals. I mean, you put them all in these boxes and then you say, okay, you have to operate this, but we're not going to reimburse you for Medicaid at these, you know, these 15, 85 cents on the dollar and you have to treat these people and you can't turn these people away and you can't have an urgent care and you have to offer all these services and it's just a growing issue. And I think that that's why Republicans look at it as getting some, some of those regulations out of the way so that people can do what they want to do. Like I was at a commission meeting tonight and their hospital is county backed right now and it's about to close. It's always on the verge of closure and the county will die if it closes. And so they're talking about ways that they can use like volunteer firefighters to pay for EMS transports that are non-emergency transports out of the county because they can't afford to do it, but they have to transport people if the people need it. And if they leave the county, there's not enough people to cover for the ones that are there. So it's just all of these things that are constant regulatory suffocations, I guess you could say. And when someone campaigns on getting rid of those to, to see if that will allow people to thrive or to at least have opportunity and choices, I think that's what's appealing. 
And I guess big government Medicaid expansion is not appealing. (laughs) It depends on who you ask. You know, I don't want that, but I'm definitely like, I totally understand the arguments way more now after living down here than I did when I was just kind of in my bubble in Atlanta. I certainly understand the perspectives a lot more than I did, even if I don't agree with them. Because life is totally different down here. I mean, there's a county I work in where they use satellite for internet. They use satellite? Satellite. I mean, what the heck? <laughs> they wouldn't, they're not doing any podcasts in Wheeler County, let me tell you. <laughs> like, they're just not. Well, that so, mean, the bad news is they're not listening to Peach Pot in Wheeler County. It's either. so sad. I mean, I have, you know, the All on Georgia is an all online news site. And people, like, print out articles and give it to their friends who don't have internet. It's so sad. Like, I appreciate it, but I'm like... You could read this online too. Like you could read more one more than one article at a time. You can click around. You don't have to have this on paper. It's just life down here. So, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion about rural Georgia in this race. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, talks about how she's been to nearly all 159 counties, and Brian Kemp talks about how he's driven his suburban to all 159 <laughs> counties. So, um, you know, I I think. I don't from afar I feel like the tide is turning to where rural Georgia might kind of get its due um or at least sort of have those issues be prominent within this campaign. Um but I think with that uh we can uh leave it there for this week. So uh Jessica, thank you so much for coming back and joining the show. Thank you for having me. And uh with that we will let you guys get out of here and we will talk to y'all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.